1, we, we see that the disciples have met with Jesus. Jesus is about to send. He tells them to go to Jerusalem and to wait on the coming of the Holy Spirit. And that they would know that the Holy Spirit had come because the fruit of that was that they would go and be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he didn't give them a timetable. They had no idea how long they would have to go and wait. And so they went and 10 days passed. And the Bible tells us in chapter 2 of the book of Acts that on the day of Pentecost, a day of festival for the Jewish people that had been around for hundreds of years, this was a time in Judaism when, when all of the Jews in the known lands at that time would come to Jerusalem to celebrate God and what he had provided through the harvest and also look forward to the coming harvest. So the town was there was the hustle and bustle as all these foreigners who were Jewish brothers and sisters had gathered for this great party. And it was a, a celebration, like I said, of the harvest. And yet on this day, in God's sovereign plan of redemption, had seen forth that in his perfect timing, that he would once again redeem Pentecost, that it would be a new harvest, and it would not be a harvest of grain and wheat, but it would be a harvest of people. And so the Holy Spirit comes and it, it fills the room. It baptizes these 120 believers who are gathered in this room. And everyone in the town hears this great, mighty hurricane explosion that sounds like a great and mighty wind. And what do they begin to do? They begin to come out in the streets and to wonder, what is this? What is taking place? And at their astonishment, they begin to hear some uneducated people from Galilee begin to speak in their language in the spreading of the gospel. And the Bible tells us that, man, 3,000 people were saved by the grace of God. As Peter stood up, looked at those men and women in the eyes, and he told them that they were murderers, that they were sinners, and that they had killed even God himself. They had killed Jesus. But all of that was orchestrated by the mighty hand of our sovereign Lord. And in doing so, they said, what must we do to be saved? And Peter says, repent, be baptized. And God grew them in number, and they began to form the, the first Baptist church or first church of Jerusalem and as these foreigners are now coming to salvation in the person and work of Jesus and will soon go back to their homelands in the spreading of the gospel. We begin to see um, throughout the book of Acts that churches are now being planted in all of these places, not just by the hands of the apostles, but also by people who had gathered on that day to worship God and were saved by Jesus. Man, this is a glorious time as we see that the church was born. There wasn't different denominations and churches on every corner. Church, Jesus was your life. There was one church, one group of people, and so everything that they had was each other's. It was God's, and they freely gave it sacrificially. Jesus was now on resting on the thrones of their lives as Savior and Lord and began to see life in this community and in this covenant very differently. They began to sacrifice, to put away their personal preferences, to put away their sense of entitlement. Church at this moment wasn't about anything but Jesus and the spreading of of the gospel. It wasn't about programs and ministries and buildings and budgets and all of these things. It was about Jesus and about getting this message of Jesus to everyone. So we come to chapter 3, and let's face it, in America, if we got a church of 3,000 when I'm done, right? I'm, I'm stopping this thing. This is big enough, all right? Let's just hunker down, huddle up, and be done. And yet, that's not what we see. I think a lot of us would like to rip out the rest of the book of Acts and just say, well, it did it, and here we are. All right, but that's not what happens. By chapter 3, what do we see taking place? We see Peter and John, they're partnered up. It's always good. We see this taking place a lot in Scripture, that Jesus is sending men and women out two by two for accountability, and for preaching, for protection, all of these sorts of things. And we see Peter and John. And what are they doing? They're heading to the temple. All right? This is a Jewish temple. 
And they're heading to this place, and as they go there, they see this lame man who's a, a beggar, and he has been there for years. Everyone in town knows this guy. He can't walk. He can't work. He's an outcast of society, and he is begging for money. And Peter and John walk next to this man, and he begins to ask them for money. And what do Peter and John say to him? They tell him, this is going to seem really unchristian. A lot of this today, in a lot of ways, may seem really unchristian, but I beg to differ today. You're going to have to put on your listening ears. You're going to have to follow along with me, because for some of you, this is going to be a great, great struggle today, and you're going to miss it. They ask for money. Peter and John say, I don't have any money. And then Peter looks at the man and he says, look at me. Isn't that interesting? Look at me. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, he tells this man, get up. And he, this man is, is healed. And immediately after, the Bible tells us later, that he was over 40 years old, all right? And so for 40 years, he's been lame and begging next to all of these religious people as they go in and out, asking for money, and as they maybe cast some change to him every so often. Yet what Peter and John bring to this man isn't money. They ultimately bring Jesus, they bring the gospel to this man. So that goes with them. And the Bible tells, him, tells us that this man clings to Peter and John and that he's leaping, that he's running. Imagine for a moment that you go from being in a wheelchair to being able to stretch out your paralyzed hands and your legs that formerly did not work are now able to carry you wherever God would lead. And so he goes to his brothers and sisters and he is leaping and rejoicing and praising an almighty God because he wants was sick, but now he is healed. He is once lost, but now he is found. What a day this must have been. What a day. So naturally, anytime you see a person get up from their mat and begin to walk, this begins to draw a crowd. Wasn't, wasn't that that guy that we've known that's been begging us for money? Wasn't that the guy that we just saw a few moments ago and this crowd begins to gather around Peter and John? And what does, John, excuse me, what does Peter do? The Bible tells us that he, he stands up again in the midst of this crowd. And what does he begin to preach? He once again begins to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ in the most religious place on the planet if you want to know what he'd preach, is it sounds like the exact same sermon just about that he preached in Acts chapter 2. Well, that's good for a preacher like me. Because I can preach the same thing. And if you say, man, G Pastor Eric, Pastor Justin preached the same thing that they did last week. You're exactly right. Because at the end of all of this, this isn't like some M. Night Shyamalan movie. Guess what? The answer is Jesus. It's Jesus. Every time, it's the gospel. The gospel is enough. We don't need the gospel and something else. We need the gospel. It was good enough to save us. It is good enough to sanctify us. And it is good enough to sustain us and make us persevere to the very end. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ. He doesn't stand up and say, well, I once was a drunkard and Jesus saved me. The end. He gets up and he proclaims the person and work of Jesus. Well, this does not make the religious leaders happy, does it, as we read in chapter 4. They begin to wonder, what, what do we do with these guys? And the Bible tells us that it was getting kind of toward evening. He'd probably been preaching all day long. That's good news for me, too. Is that he's preaching for all day, probably. And all of these people are hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we get this picture of that, that it's getting toward evening. They don't really know what to do with them. So they're like, man, we're going to put these guys in jail. But the Bible tells us here in this passage that what happened, proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection of the dead, and they arrested them. This is verse 3 in chapter 4. They arrested to them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But get this, but many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. We see in the book of Acts, we see this grouping of people, 120. By the time we get to Acts chapter 2, there's now 3,000 people that are professing the person and work of Jesus. By the time that we get to the middle of, or the beginning of chapter 4, there's now 5,000 men. That doesn't even mention the women and children that are probably also hearing this. It's believing guesstimations that the church has now grown in the matter of a few days from this 120 to over 10 thousand people. 
says they're being drug away where? To jail. To jail. This is what begins to take place as the power of the Holy Spirit. They put them in jail. All these people are saved. The next day, they finally decide to, to gather and say, man, what, what are we going to do with these guys? we got to shut them up. They're going to take our possessions. They're going to take our power. We're going to lose insight and, and pressure on these people. They've got to stop. This is blasphemy that they're preaching this person of Jesus Christ. And yet, what does the Bible tell us? Let's read again in verse 8. They ask him, how are you doing this? Whose name are you doing this in? Verse 8, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if you are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you crucified, who God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected, um, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. So what does he do? Once again, the religious people, this is the upper crust of the religious um, movement of this time. They are standing trial. They can either deny this work and this person, or they can stand strong. And what does Peter do? He's filled with the Holy Spirit. He's given boldness, and he begins to once again proclaim the person and work of Jesus. The court did not know how to respond to this. Why? Because, man, there was a man that yesterday, 24 hours ago, this man was lame. He's been there for years, begging, not able to move, the outcast of society. And yet today he stands next to these men probably in shackles and he is leaping, rejoicing. The crowd is now leaping and rejoicing. The men simply can't do very much. And so they go to Peter and John and they tell them, hey, hey guys, you, you just got to stop. You got to stop preaching about this Jesus fella. You got to stop proclaiming Jesus. And yet, once again, Peter, a few months ago, denying Jesus, is now the man who is boldly, not dreaming up in, in his own courage, but courage that only comes from the Holy Spirit. Spirit. What does he say? Verse 19, but Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened him, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people for all were praising God for what had happened. So what does he do again? And he says, no, this is because of Jesus. We will not be quiet. Why? Why does he tell them? Because we've seen Jesus. We have heard Jesus. Ladies and gentlemen, you need to understand, when you meet not a cultural Jesus, not an American Jesus, not some light-skinned, blonde-haired, blue-eyed Jesus, not some cultural, easy believism type of Jesus, but ladies and gentlemen, when you truly meet the person and work of Jesus, when you have heard Him speak your name, when you have read His Word, when you have encountered the living God, it will forever change you. Do not mock our God. He will not be mocked. Those who have been saved will proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, no matter if it's culturally popular or not. And we see this. They would not. Why? They'd seen Jesus. They'd heard Jesus. They'd seen the power of the resurrection. And so they, they're set free. And what does the Bible tell us there as we continue on in the chapter? It says they gather up their friends. And they begin to tell them what is taking place. Ladies and gentlemen, man, we need good gospel friendships. 
In a time where people are so uncommitted will leave you and a gathering of believers as quickly as possible because of their own personal preferences, we, like the early church, must learn to gather and to be in covenant and to celebrate. And that's why we gather, because we have been out proclaiming all week long that we come here on a Sunday morning, the Lord's Day, and proclaim and ask God for healing, and then He sends us back out to do the same proclaim the gospel they get together and they begin to pray and I, I get this picture that after doing this they're like man wait whoa you know maybe they were even tempted to go back into being a little timid but what does the bible tell us they do they get together and they pray notice how they pray i'm gonna use some christian cuss words here sovereign all right it's Right there. It means God is in control of everything. Everything. He does not create evil, and yet He can use evil for good inside of the believers. We see that at the cross. It was both evil and ordained by God. The plan of God. He is the sovereign Lord. So they're not trusting in themselves. They're not trusting in their plan. They're not trusting in, in their talents and, and opportunities, their own funds and these sorts of things. They are trusting in the sovereign Lord, the one who made the heavens and the earth. We keep going down. There's another Christian cuss word. It says in verse 28, do, this is a scary prayer, to do whatever your hand and your plan has predestined to take place. Sounds very familiar to what Jesus says. Lord, whatever your will be done, let it be done. Help us to trust it even when we do not understand what you're doing. And that's the story of my week. Lord, I don't know what you're doing. And at the end of the day, God, all I can find hope in, all I can find trust in, is knowing that you're the sovereign God. And that none of this is outside of, of your knowledge, your plan, and your understanding. And so, though we are struck down, we are, we are not crushed. Though we are, are persecuted, we are not left. God is in control of all things. And I, I think it's Tim Keller, if he says this, that if we knew what God was doing and what was happening in our lives, and we knew everything that God knows, then we would do it exactly the same way that God is doing it. Why? Because he is sovereign and he is Lord. What is the response of their prayers? What is the fruit of their prayers? They go right back out, doesn't it say? 31. And, they, um, and when they had prayed, the place in which they gathered together was shaken. And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God in boldness. In boldness. This is what's taking place inside. This is our text and our context. And, and now it becomes our launch pad for, for what does this mean for us? What does this mean for them? What does it mean now? So what does this narrative here found in Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4 reveal about our unstoppable God? And this is what I would contend to you. And as I've been learning and, and learning from others is this. Write this down if you're a note taker. God is going to build His church. And we're going to see this through the book of Acts. And this is the way that He's going to do it. And over the next several months, we're going to keep coming back to these three Ps. He's going to do that through proclamation. He's going to do that through persecution. And He is going to do that through prayer. God is going to build His church. He is an unstoppable God. He has an unstoppable mission. He has an unstoppable spirit. And He has an unstoppable church. And the way that He's going to grow that, whether you like it or whether you don't, is through those three things. We saw it in the book of Acts. You'll see it through the entire New Testament. And where God is growing His church, especially in other countries, you will see all three of those things invading what is taking place. The first thing that I want to look at, and the main one that we're going to look at today is this, is that God builds His church through proclamation. That God builds His church through proclamation. And this is where you're going to have to really listen to me. Because if, if you twist some of the things, and you hear things that I don't say, or you mishear the things I am going to say, it can mess you up. 
So I'm going to ask that the Spirit just really make this very clear. And if you have questions, don't run. You come talk to me about them. All right? God is going to build His church through proclamation. God, our God, the only God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, the Creator of all things, guess what He is? He is a missionary. Our God has a mission. He Himself is a missionary. God sends Jesus. Jesus sends the Holy Spirit. And Jesus sends the church. John chapter 20, As the Father sent me, so I send you. Isn't it amazing? A gracious God that we serve, that is, is not this picture of God way up there somewhere, that it's unreachable and, and not able to have a relationship. We serve a passionate, intimate, pursuing God that pursues after His people, that He's not way up there, but that our God is right here. We have a God that comes to us. Whether you live in the penthouse or you're in the pit, we have a God that saves both of those individuals. God is a God who comes. He is a God on a mission. In the Bible, it tells us in Acts chapter 1, the Holy Spirit will come to you and you will be my witnesses. We begin to see this take place in the book of Acts. Again, most of us would have just stopped there, and yet we continue to see this idea of what happens in the early church. The early church, members of the local body, they were titled the ones who are sent. They are the sent ones. And we're going to see this take place, like I said, over and over and over and over again. But over time, the church began to be less characterized as the sent ones and more as the come to us ones. Especially in the last 30 years or so, there's been a, a segment in our Christian history, and some of you will know this and some of you don't, but it was called the church growth movement. Over the last 30 or so years, I would contend, and you could even go to seminary classes and learn about church growth and be equipped on how to grow your church. And so what began to happen, especially in the modern era, is, is this idea of focusing a lot, not on going to people, but making sure that we are being attractional church enough that we, our music kind of sounds like the world, um, our speech kind of sounds like the world, we kind of dress like the world, sound like the world. World. We kind of look like the world, but every so often we talk about God. It's kind of like going to, to AA. We speak of a higher power, but we, we want to be extremely sensitive because we want as many people as possible to come to our buildings and hopefully along the way, somehow, they'll hear the gospel. This is what takes place over the last several years in the church growth movement. But alongside of that, as this was becoming extremely popular, there, there was a remnant of scholars, believers, uh, followers in Jesus that were like, man, uh, not that this is all bad, but when we read the scripture, it, it wasn't about this attractional model of gathering as many people as you can in one singular building. But if we look at the specific at the book of Acts and the writings of Paul, that, that it was about going it was about a mission, that it was about movement, that it was about what's happening out there, that the people, they do gather, and yet what's mostly taking place is this scattering for the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they began to use terms like mission or missional. Maybe you've heard these terms, and I'm not opposed to this, these terms. We named our church Mission Church. Why? Because of what we're going to talk about today. Missions became a department. And uh, we, we have a, a full-time missionary that is with us today, one of my best friends, Mark. And so what I'm about to say, I hope it doesn't offend you. Um, missions during church growth movement became a department. All right? So we have the worship department. Those people sing and wear skinny jeans, Right? Um, that's the preaching department, and those are the yellers, the screamers, the real charismatic guys. And we have the missions department. And the missions department and missionaries became these really American, for us, socially awkward people that in order to get them away from us, we encouraged them to go live in foreign lands. Because those people don't know they're socially awkward. 
they seem like rock stars. If you ever go to a foreign country and you tell them you're American, except for maybe in Iraq and Iran, they will think you're a movie star simply because you walk down the street and you speak English. I've had it happen. Signing autographs, I'm like, dude, I'm a nobody. <laughs> like, uh-uh, this is not cool. I'm not a celebrity. I'm just an American, okay? But that's what began to happen. We made a department, and we kind of sent, okay, these are these really socially awkward people that can't really fit in here, and all of a sudden get a calling. So, yeah, go. We'll write that check. We'll send you. And that is missions during this idea. And yet, when we look at the Scripture when we see what's taking place in the book of Acts, specifically here in chapter 3 and 4, they were being people who were being sent. Being a missional church is a good thing. It's, it's desire and heart to see the church return to what we're seeing in the book of Acts. But like many things, words that become popular will often lose their original meanings. People who are sent. This is the early church. In Christianity, missional living is the adoption of the posture and thinking, behaviors and practices of a missionary in order to engage others with the gospel message. Now, I'm your pastor, and if you're new to us, man, thank you guys for hanging out with us. If you don't have a church home, hope this becomes your place. Um, for those of you who have been here, a lot of times you don't believe me, um, so I'm just going to quote a bunch of people, um, and hopefully you'll believe them because they're smarter than I am. All right? Missional. Missions. This is from Alan Hirsch. He's like one of the missional church gurus. Listen to what he says. Missional is more than social justice. Everybody know what social justice is? Helping poor people, water wells, there's a plethora of opportunities for social justice. Missional is more than social justice. Engaging the poor and correcting inequalities is part of being God's agent in the world. But we should not confuse this with the whole. A proper understanding of missional begins with recovering a missionary understanding of God. By his very nature, God is a sent one who takes the initiative to redeem his creation. This doctrine, known as Missio Dei, is the sending of God. Is causing many to redefine their understanding of the church because we are the sent people of God. The church is the instrument of God's mission in the world. As things stand, many people see it um, the other way around. They believe mission is an instrument of the church, a means by which the church is grown. Although we frequently say the church has a mission, according to missional theology, a more correct statement would be a mission or the mission has a church. Many churches have mission statements or talk about the importance of mission, but they are truly missional churches differ is in their posture toward the world. A missional community sees the mission as both its originating impulse and its organizing principle. A missional community is patterned after what God has done in Jesus Christ. In the incarnation, God sent his son. Similarly, to be missional means to be sent into the world. We do not expect people to come to us. This posture differentiates a missional church from an attractional church. The attractional model, which was dominated in the church in the West, seeks to reach out to culture and to draw people into the church, what I call outreach and in-grab. But this model only works where there is no significant cultural shift is required when moving from outside to inside the church. And as Western culture has become an increasingly post-Christian, the attractional model has lost its effectiveness. The West looks more like a cross-cultural missionary context in which attractional church models are self-defeating. The process of extracting people from their culture and assimilating them into the church diminishes their ability to speak to those outside. People see to be, cease to be missional. Instead, leave that work to the clergy. A missional theology is not content with mission being church-based work. Rather, it applies to the whole life of every believer. 
Every disciple is to be an agent of the kingdom of God, and every disciple is to carry the mission of God into every sphere of life. We are all missionaries sent into a non-Christian culture. Missional represents a significant shift in the way that we think about church. As people of the missionary God, we ought to engage the world the same way He does, by going out rather than just reaching out. An abstract To obstruct this movement is to block God's purposes in and through His people. When the church is in mission, it is the church. No one can say, this is another guy, Thomas Hale, no one can say, since I'm not called to be a missionary, I do not have to evangelize my friends and neighbors. There is no difference. There is no difference in spiritual terms between the missionary witnessing in his hometown and a missionary witnessing in Kathmandu, Nepal, which we need to pray for. We are all called to go, even if it's only to the next room or to the next block, Thomas Hale. N.T. Wright, the church exists, in other words, uh, for what sometimes is called mission. And what is that mission? To announce to the world that Jesus is Lord. Dale Guter in his church, the, the missional church. Mission is not just a program in the church. It defines the church as God sent people. Either we are defined by mission or reduce the scope of the gospel and the mandate of the church. Thus, our challenge today is to move from the church with mission to a missional church. When we look at this idea and we're asking then, what is the idea? What is the mission then? What is the goal of the sent ones? And this is where you need to be careful. It is to make disciples. Not simply get converts to say some prayer. Not simply to do good deeds in the world. But the goal, as we see from Jesus Himself, is to make disciples. This is the ultimate goal of the church. A great author and pastor friend, um, Kevin DeYoung, wrote a book called The Mission of the Church. I would encourage you to read that. But you know what it says over and over and over again? Make disciples. This is what Jesus says that needs to be done. Sometimes other opportunities that we have as believers, these are good opportunities, they are holy, they are right causes, but if not seen through the lens of the gospel and the Great Commission can become distractions that make us feel good, but miss God's mission. Jesus' number one priority was to seek and save the lost. He came doing many things in his ministry, and other than the cross and resurrection, I would continue that the most important aspect of his ministry was the preaching of the gospel. His last command was to go and what? Come on, Baptist. We got one verse memorized. Make disciples. All right? It's to make disciples. Make disciples. This is extremely important. Now, because we are Christians, we are called to, yes, love our neighbor. We get involved in serving the world in a variety of ways. And each one of those ways may be different for every one of us as God has gifted us. Here at Mission Church, we have several partnerships that we're working on and plans um, for future engagement with our community and city here in Bowling Green. In this, we are working in ways to alleviate suffering poverty, and other social issues. It just so happens that two of my closest friends in town are the directors of two of the biggest ministries in town that do those things. Rondell Miller, I've known since I was a a teenager with Mark. We cut a CD in her son's living room, or bedroom and bathroom. That's a whole other story. And then a great friend of mine, a very close brother of mine, Brian Lewis, who is the director of Hope House Ministries, and Pastor Justin and I have even met with Brian recently talking about different social issues and how we as Mission Church need to begin to deepen our partnership with what is taking place with the poor and oppressed and those who are suffering in our church. 
We have other people in, in ministries involved within our congregation. And we as your pastors and we as a church want to empower that. We want to equip you to do those things that God lays those individually on your heart. And we want to financially support you as you do those things. So all of these different aspects of ministries, we get to choose don't ever say that the church should be doing this or ought to be doing this if it's outside of the Great Commission, because it's not true. We get to do those things. We are allowed and are able to love our neighbors and our city by doing those things. However, ladies and gentlemen, those are secondary to the Great Commission, and that is the proclamation of the Word of God to everyone that we come in contact with. Making disciple. How does it begin? Through the proclamation of the Gospel. How does it continue? Through the preaching of the Gospel. You and I are using our mouths to proclaim the Gospel is the most important ministry any of us can be involved in. And the one we are all called to do. When we look at the personal work of Jesus, sometimes when he saw hungry people, you know what he did? He fed them. And you know what he did other times? He walked past them. You know why? One of his biggest frustrations that we see in ministry or we see in the scripture is that they had totally missed the point. They would follow him because they simply wanted a meal. And Jesus would stop feeding them. Because you know what he ultimately knew? There is a greater need. There's a greater need. Are those things not important? Not what I'm saying. They're very important. There are things that Laura and I do both publicly and privately that help alleviate those issues as God has called us to do. And yet, those are not more important than the proclamation of the gospel that we are all called to do. When we look at this, and we look back into our story here, why does Peter and John get in trouble? Do, do they get in trouble for healing the lame man? Nope. What do they get in trouble for? Preaching the gospel. Making disciples. The world will celebrate the, the lame now being able to walk, and that's not to belittle that. But the thing is, guess what happened to that man years later? He died. Poor Lazarus died twice in his life. Poor fella. Jesus at the well with the woman, the prostitute, the Samaritan woman, right? They're at a well. They're getting water. And Jesus says, hey, can I have something to drink? It's okay to be thirsty. It's okay to give water. But what does Jesus say? If you will drink of me the, the living water, you will thirst no more. Because what does he know? What's going to happen tomorrow? I guarantee you that Samaritan woman went right back to that well because she was thirsty for physical. But her spiritual thirst had been filled. Yes, social needs are great. But there's a greater need, and that is to seek and save the loss. This is crucial to understanding God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, the Scripture, and our calling as Mission Church. We have to stop compartmentalizing and micromanaging our Christianity. Ladies and gentlemen, you're either, we'll go old school, you're either a follower of Jesus 24-7, if you're from the 90s. Or you're not. It either encompasses everything in your life, or you're not a follower of Jesus. And in encompassing everything, God has not sent you to work so that can be your punishment and so that you can get a paycheck. God has placed you specifically in that place so that men and women will hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am in a discipleship um, program, and we've offered that to a lot of people, and some of you have taken that up on us. 
both men and women are being one-on-one discipleship or one-on-group discipleship along with our missional communities here at Mission. And, and I get the privilege of doing that with one of our police officers in our, in our, in our congregation, um, Kyle. And in that discipleship, one of the things that we cover every week is a missional component of saying, okay, we've learned all of this cool stuff, but if it doesn't have hands and feet and action to it, we're missing the point here. And so we've been praying with it, and I've been pushing him, and he's been pushing me, and we've been specifically praying for other men that he is sharing the gospel with that are on that force. That is a missional church. And I had someone two months ago tell me that we weren't. Now, here's the thing. One, I don't think you understand what the definition of missional means. And two, just because you are not being doesn't mean that we collectively as a whole aren't. Does that make sense? There are always obedient and disobedient people within a covenant community. All right? And so it's important for us to understand this. Let's compare how we send foreign missionaries. And I've asked Mark to help me with a lot of this. When we send foreign missionaries to a country, and, and then what we're doing here in America, let, let's look at this. International mission is, so what do we do? We, we, we get some, you know, assess people, and we send them to a foreign country. They begin time uh, learning the history. They learn the culture. They learn the language. And then what do they do? They go out and they build relationships with people. And then what do they do with that? They share the gospel with them. We have friends, and I can't mention their names, but they're members here of Mission Church that are our missionaries in a closed country. And some of you guys meet them, and uh, hopefully we'll get to see them in July. I talked to them over Skype this last week, and um, I can't mention them because of the security reasons. But they are missionaries in a closed country. It's a Muslim country. And you know what? They don't go there and, and, and help with poverty-stricken things. Not that they wouldn't, but that's not the main objective. You know what she does? She's a teacher. Why does she teach? So that she can build relationships with Muslim students and share the gospel with them. That is her purpose. Her husband, music guy, what did he do? Didn't go out here and come up with all these other things, which are good. He started a choir. This choir has grown to be several, several, several students. Why did he do that? Because they like to hear these people sing American songs. It is funny if you've watched any of the videos. But he did it so that he can meet students and do what? Share the gospel. And it was either last Sunday or the Sunday before one of those students actually went to church with them. That's why they do it. I was thinking about Mark. I didn't know he was going to be here this morning, so he made me nervous. But Mark and I, and as a church, we are building a relationship to begin to partner with Mark. Uh, Mark is a full-time missionary with his wife and three kids, and he's not socially awkward. Um, But we did send him over there. Now he's socially awkward. He came back, and now he's socially awkward in America. But he wasn't before. He was cool then, but not so much now. Um... And we're we're building a partnership as a church to go and make disciples amongst the people group of the Songhai. This is one of the most poverty-stricken lands on the planet. And Mark and I were sitting having some coffee not too long ago, and he he said, man, here's the deal. i I, got to get you to Africa. I've got to get you to this place. And here's what he told me. He said, we're going to hop in my truck. And, and we're going to drive out as far in the middle of nowhere that the law will allow us to do this. And we're going to go into a village that has not heard the gospel. They're going to be poor. They're probably going to be thirsty. There could be AIDS. I, I, I don't know what, what is taking place with social issues amongst these people. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to go to the chief. We're gonna, not going to ask for permission, but we're going to go to that chief and we're going to say, hey, we're Christians. We're followers of Jesus. We believe that you have a greater need than your thirst. And that's that you need Jesus. You need Jesus. I long for that day to be able to go with my brother with all of the years since the second grade that we've known each other, 
And yes, are they going to be thirsty? Are we going to break our hearts over the starvation? Yes, but there's a greater need than those things, and it is the need that there are people that are lost that are going to split hell wide open that need to hear the gospel, and we need to pray that God's sovereign grace in the moment, through the proclamation of the gospel, that He would forever change these people's lives. Mark told me a story. He said he was farming with a, a guy that he's come to know and a believer named Ibrahim. And that one day that he told him that there were a lot of people from America who wanted to come to his village and to build wells and to help people um, out with money and health issues. And he said, he, he said that it, it sounded good. And then they went on farming. He said a little later, Ibrahim came to Mark. After he had been to process these thoughts, and he asked this question, are those people that you're talking about, they're not Christians, are they? Mark answered, yes, in fact, they are Christians. Ibram looked puzzled on his face, and he asked, Mark asked him, what's, what's wrong? And this was Ibram's reply. We don't need more wells. Do you get that? We don't need more wells. These are people who are dying of starvation and thirst. They don't have water. This isn't like, this isn't some, I got this out of good preaching storybooks, illustrations. The witness is among us. They don't, we don't need more wells. We need the gospel. We don't need money. We need people to hear about Jesus. He then said something that Mark said he'll never forget. Why would someone who knows Jesus come to a place where people don't know Jesus and not tell them the good news? Mark said he didn't know what to say. Ibrahim went on and explained that his people had suffered greatly for their entire existence. They suffer now and continue to suffer. Yes, more wells would be a good thing. Yes, more money would help us uh, with some things, um, but it wouldn't help the ultimate thing, their eternity. Ibrahim said that suffering so much here has made thinking and longing for heaven even sweeter for him. And, e and, and Mark wrote this. He said, Ibrahim um, gets it. He gets something in, that I and many others quickly forget. Something I've forgotten because of how easy and comfortable my life was in the States and really continues to even be in Niger. He gets that comfort is not the goal. He gets that it's not about the best life now. He gets that Christ is everything and everything else is rubbish. Ibrahim understands the gospel deeper than the seminary grad. Kevin DeYoung once said this, and I think Mark was at the, the missions conference at, where he heard them say this. He said this, if Oprah can go on your mission trip, then it's not a mission trip. Take a step further. If she can come to our church and stay that way, it ain't a church. Because here's the thing, man. Do your research. Probably the most giving Entities and organizations toward poverty and suffering in the world are not Christian. They can do that. Should we, or, or do we get to do that as Christians? Yes. We get to participate in that. We get to participate in adoptions. We get to participate in the building of wells. And we get to participate in, in feeding people and feeding a homeless. Those are all good and righteous things if they are done so in the name of Jesus. But here's the deal. If you hand someone a cup of water or a bag of McDonald's under the bridge, the homeless people here in Bowling Green, and you hand them that food and you don't share the gospel, then you have not been on mission. You will feel good about yourself. But you have missed what it means for us as believers to get to be involved in the proclamation of the gospel. And so this is what we do in foreign lands. But for some reason, it, is, it has been diluted and mistranslated when it comes to us as Americans. This is not a Christian nation. It is a lost one. And people at your jobs in these places, both poor and rich, need to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is what it's about 
proclamation of Jesus. In this way, ministry is done in other, other countries and the church is growing there. Then why is this not the primary way that we engage ministry in America? I believe this is good practice, not only for them, but also for us. So the question is not are we living as missionaries in Bowling Green, but are you living as a missionary in Bowling Green? Jesus called, commanded the church to make disciples. So then the question is, who are you, believer, discipling? And that could be a non-believer and a believer. It should be both. Both. Don't make this up. It is the fruit of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Is this proclamation. God is going to use our stumbling, nervous, anxious, incoherent proclamation to continue the spread of the gospel throughout the world. It's not a perfect presentation, but a faith beyond our abilities. If we refuse to share, then we are like the religious people that we see here inside of this. The religious didn't want the disciples to proclaim the gospel because they were afraid that they would lose power and influence. Don't we struggle with the same things? If I share the gospel, I will appear weak. If I share the gospel, I will be made fun of. In the word of Dr. Dr. Russell Moore, as citizens, we should expect freedom of religion. As Christians, we shouldn't expect freedom from ridicule. The gospel is that he uses unskilled, ordinary men and women like you and I that could not speak of anything else. Why? Because they have seen Jesus and they could not shut up about it. In the next few weeks, we're going to talk about the second one and that God is going to build His church through persecution. We're also going to be talking further about God's building His church through prayer. After Peter and John got done, what did they go do? They went and prayed to the Sovereign Lord for what? boldness and what was the response of that boldness proclamation again how many of you i won't make you raise your hand i won't make you go too charismatic this morning let freak some of you out how many of you the idea of you sharing the gospel you answer this to yourself scares you to death You're like, man, I don't know what to say. I don't want people to think less of me. I don't want to become unpopular. My friend, Pastor Jeremy, the Axis Church in Nashville, he's a part of our external advisory council of pastors for this church. And I was meeting with him for some accountability a few weeks ago. And he said, man, did you listen to my sermon a few weeks ago? And I said, no, I, I didn't. He said, man, we, we're, we're preaching through when the disciples are at the lake, right? And it's dark, it's night, and Jesus had gone off by himself. Everybody remember the story? All the disciples were in a boat, and they began to see this figure begin to, to come toward them, and they, they became afraid, the Bible tells us, because they thought it was a ghost, and Pastor Jeremy told me, he said, as someone was reading the scripture, Pastor Jeremy was standing over here waiting to preach, and like we do sometimes, they had um, a person of the congregation reading the scripture for that day. And he said, I, I was not ready for this. He said, but when I think it was a lady got to the point where it said the disciples were afraid. He said immediately he was overcome, overcome with emotion and began to just weep before his people. And for the first three to five minutes of his sermon, all he could do was cry. Because as she was reading that, he felt like God spoke to him 
and said, that's your people. They're afraid. Can I be confessional? I am too. The easiest place for me to proclaim the gospel is behind this pulpit. And literally, I, I, I would fight for it. The hardest place to proclaim the gospel is in your neighborhoods with the people that you live and work with. And ladies and gentlemen, I, I think to some degree, God's okay. And He is gracious enough to forgive us even of us being afraid. Because I think that these men and women were. Because they go back and what do they do? They pray, God, give us what? Boldness. And the Holy Spirit filled them again and rested upon them again. And what is the response? They go from that place proclaiming once again the person and work of Jesus. As I stand here today, we're going to do something that we've never done before. I'm about to either freak everybody out and me and my wife and kids will be the only people here at church next week. We've never done this, and we're just, we're going to scratch. Like, I'm not going to sing, or we've, we've made it through that enough. What we are going to do is we're going to pray. And that's going to be awkward for some of us. And isn't it weird that for us as Christians, it's awkward that we're going to pray at church? And we'll try to make this as organized and as Baptist as possible. But we're not going to pray for anything else right now. But that God would help me. And that God would help you to not be afraid to proclaim the gospel. And I mean the full gospel. That awkward kind of twinsing like, yeah, you're a sinner. But Jesus came to save. I'm not talking about the gospel that we've made it into, like I've invited somebody to church that's spreading the gospel. That's not spreading the gospel. That's an invitation. We're talking about inviting people to a personal relationship with Jesus. So we're going to take a few moments here instead of singing. Because I think praying is more important. The book of Acts is not about a group of people getting together. They do sing in the book of Acts. But that's not the way he grows his church. He grows it through proclamation. He grows it through persecution. And he grows it through prayer. So we're going to have a few moments. I'll kick us off. Pastor Justin, you can close us out. All right, so I'm dialing. He's hanging up. Anybody that wants to pray, you can pray out loud. Nobody's going to call you out to pray right now. I think that this is something that we need to do as a church body. And after we've had that awkward moment of silence, Pastor Justin will close us out, give us some announcements, and we're going to be dismissed. Is that okay? Okay. Well, Jesus, come before you, God. thanking you, God, that you are the sovereign Lord of the universe. That you are the King of kings, that you are the Lord of lords. That you are the, the sovereign one who has planned all things. You knew my tomorrow yesterday. You know what Mission Church looks like a hundred years from now. Lord, you know what she looks like globally in eternity. So God, we come here just confessing that we're scared. We're scared of losing power. We're scared of being embarrassed. We're scared of being socially awkward. And yet, Lord Jesus, as our 
early brothers and sisters in Christ pray, Lord. We pray for boldness. Or that you grow our church not by the transferring of sheep. Lord, that you would grow this church, Lord, from, from sheep who are currently lost, Lord, that you're going to bring into the fold. One thing's for sure, Lord, we know this, that you have a mission. That you have a plan. And you're going to do that in Bowling Green, Lord. Lord, we simply come before you asking you that you would give us the grace to be involved. That in some small way or even big way, Lord, that we'd be more dedicated to the making of disciples, to the personal work of Jesus, than we are our own personal preferences and agendas. Lord, forgive us where we fail you in these things. But Holy Spirit, may you shake us. May you fill us. And Lord, may they have to leap over our bodies to get to hell. Lord, both in Niger, in Kazakhstan, in Haiti, Lord, in Surprise, Arizona, Lord, in, in Portland, Tennessee, with Brian this morning, with our many brothers and sisters in Bowling Green and other churches, Lord. May you do a work in our hearts, in our churches, for the glory of God and for the good of your people.